This is the Weekly You Demon. I encourage you to listen. It's good stuff. Sometimes he's even sober during the show. Well, hats off to Dokovich. Gosh, just got done watching the dozen. Five-hour woman finals, longest in history. Can't say I watched the entire thing. I missed the beginning of it because I had no cable. <laughs> I forgot about that, that my wife and I, we just had a horrible experience with DirecTV. Just cotton-picking awful from installation, from the interface and the TV to... Deceptive billing practices. It was unbelievable how bad DirecTV is. So after a lot of whining um, and complaining, Marie got us out of it. <laughs> I was interested in writing a letter, threatening to sue under uh, the Michigan Consumer Protection Act. But we didn't have to go that far. We were able to get out of it. But one thing DirecTV did very efficiently is they shut down access. <laughs> Marie said, yeah, she's talking to this uh, manager because it, it went up through the ranks. And basically said, fine. He goes, we'll, we'll cancel your service effect immediately. No no further money is due. And like two seconds later, I'm flicking <laughs> TV and there's there's nothing there. So that's one thing DirecTV does well. They, they'll they shut it down quickly. And so every provider through my Roku, all the stuff was gone. And I was like, you know, it's summertime. I don't really care. So I you know, just didn't bother getting a different service. But this is the second time, like in the past three weeks, it's been something I really wanted to watch. So this time I just go went ahead and downloaded Sling TV. It's like um, the poor man's core cut, cord cutter, twenty five bucks a month. I'll go ahead and keep that until football season comes up, and I'll probably have to reach my pocket and get YouTube Live. I guess they have the best football package. But anyway, yeah, Dokovic beats Federer in a five hour marathon match, longest Wimbledon in history. And I was pulling from Federer. Federer is a, uh, a committed Catholic, a devout Catholic, a serious Catholic. I don't know. I've seen him referred to different ways. Although I think he may have knocked up his wife before they got married. I'm not sure about that. I couldn't, couldn't make out from the Wikipedia entry. It actually wasn't Wikipedia. It was, uh, a site called the Hollow Verse that kind of lays out different celebrities, uh, politics and, uh, religious affiliations. And I found it to be pretty reliable. So check out the Hollow Verse if you're curious about such things. But Dokovic, uh, he's no slouch, but he's part of the Serbian Orthodox Church. You know, so basically you're going back to the year 1054 when the, the split between Rome and Constantinople, between the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church was, was pretty much official. Both sides anathematized each other, declared each other heretics, and they never did come back together. So yeah, this is like a, you know, reliving of the year 1054, Roman Catholic versus the Greek Orthodox or in this case, Serbian Orthodox, which is part of the greater Greek Orthodox Church. And damn, the Serbian, the Serbian Orthodox, they, they, they beat the Catholics. <laughs> Congratulations, Dokovic. Dokovic, by the way, I guess like he's like a big time Serbian Orthodox. He's gotten some awards or some recognitions from the Serbian Orthodox Church. I guess he donates a ton of money to, uh, Orthodox monasteries. And I guess he's really into it. Uh, one, one inch I saw, is that he actually practices, they say, meditation up to one hour a day, including when he's at Wimbledon at a Buddhist temple. That's kind of interesting, especially since this in this episode where he might start trying, trying to uh, wade back into some uh, Zen and Taoism type areas. So keep that in mind. It's okay, Dokovic, he, he's the man. He might be the greatest player of all time, him or Federer, probably. And he does meditation at least when he's at Wimbledon at a Buddhist temple, so... Get off my back if you're getting mad at me for that. 
About five, maybe ten years ago, an old college roommate of mine stopped by. He was in town anyway. Gonna call him. Gonna call him Jasper in case he listens to this podcast. <laughs> He's actually one of my oldest friends. Great guy. Uh, we roomed together when we were at the University of Michigan. We had an apartment together. He he uh, made an obscene amount of money once he graduated. He's one of these um, you know hedge fund type managers, and he made a ton of money. Retired when he was like thirty five years old. Brilliant, brilliant man. And he was in town, he came over, and we're sitting on the my front porch, drinking wine. In my case, too much wine. <laughs> Just throwing back a bottle or two. Nice red wine on a summer evening. And we started talking religion. He is, he is an ex-Catholic. He had left the church. And uh, he was never a real serious Catholic to begin with. He, <laughs> he reminded this story. Oh, and this, this priest I'm listening to, he's doing a, a lecture. And he says, hey, he goes, if you die... And you get to the pearly gates, and they ask what you did, and you were involved in Catholic education in the 1960s, 70s, or early 1980s, deny it, because you're not getting in. <laughs> so basically, people I grew up with, they just received a horrible Catholic education. I don't, you know, and I don't know the whole story. I know it's a lot of Vatican II fallout, and just this whole liberalizing trend, and clap for Jesus type stuff, but just basically no meat, no substance, and the catechist who were in charge of instructing these kids from the 1960s to the, I'm going to guess, probably mid to 1980s before the John Paul II reform started going through. Just did a horrible job. And he was he was a victim of that. So even though his parents were committed Catholics, he never received the instruction he should have received. But no matter. He's back on the spiritual path now. And I think he's like a non-denom of some sort. And we're sitting out there drinking, and, and he's telling me about this... uh well, he's telling me a couple of things, but one of which, you know, he's, he wants to live a very, very simple life. It's like he reminds me of that Pablo Picasso. I want to, I want to live like a, a poor man with money. <laughs> That's kind of how, how Jasper was living, or still living, as far as I know. I haven't seen him for a couple of years now. You know, living as a poor man with with money. He had a he had a flip phone. You know, I had an, I had an iPhone for five or ten years at this point, and he's still using a flip phone. He was getting into gardening. He, he found that to be a simple pursuit, the type of thing he was looking at. And he was kind of interested in, you know, my gardening, things like that. And he's talking about this, this, uh, figure in the Old Testament. I, quite frankly, I can't remember who it was. I remember he's like one of the few people in the Bible that never died. You know, they make reference to the guy that he, he continued his days and walked with God. Something along those lines. I can't remember the man's name. Someone back in Genesis. And he said, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, what my goal is. I just want to walk with God. He goes, and no, I don't want to be, you know, tied to anything and anything that, that's going to keep me in this, you know, tied to the flesh, to the earth. I don't want anything to do with it. And he talked for quite a while and I'm, I'm getting pretty drunk here. <laughs> and I, I, I feel, I feel myself getting my heart pounding faster and faster and listening to this. And I said, I said, you, you know what you're describing, right? He goes, what? And I said, detachment. He goes, what do you mean? And I said, you've never heard the word detachment before. He's like, no. And I said, well, let me tell you about it. <laughs> and that's what, that's what we're going to do here in this segment of the podcast. Detachment is the first rule of the spiritual life. I forgive my Protestant friends for not knowing what detachment is. The idea of spiritual progress, uh, spiritual advancement, that cultivating inner virtue, things like that, that's 
a, a prejudice against that's kind of baked into the Reformation. Luther, you know, hated the idea. You know, he, Luther viewed all of us as like a snow-covered dung. It's <laughs> how so, you know a pile of crap. We're all piles of crap, and it's the uh, it's the blood of Christ that covers us with snow to make us beautiful. But there's nothing we can do, period, to help ourselves. We are just piles of crap. And so that type of thinking pervades Protestantism just in general. Again, not not entirely. I mean, you definitely have the Wesleys. You know, um, John Charles Wesley. You had the Quaker movement. You have you have you have definitely Protestant movements who do believe in spiritual advancement. But as a general rule, especially those of the Lutheran uh, strain of Protestantism, spiritual advancement just isn't there. So when there's something like detachment, which is like the number one rule of the spiritual life. It's understandable, like a lot of Americans don't know anything about it. So we're going to talk about it today. No, you know, so first off, you know what? What is it? Well, easy, easy to, to tell you what it is. Basically, detachment is unattachment <laughs> to, to any finite thing. So you're not attached to any finite thing. And there's and again, this it gets when you start getting the, into the into the sinews of this thing, it gets pretty complicated. But they often break it down between like poverty, obedience, and chastity. So poverty is no attachment to any finite thing. Uh, chastity, it means that type of detachment means no, no lust or desire for anything. And then obedience is like that, that inner type detachment where you're just told what to believe, what to think. You don't have your own opinions. You're not tied to your own opinions. You're not tied to your reputation, things like that. And that kind of casts in that to what we're talking about when we talk about detachment. I do want to take a, a quick side life. I do have any Dokovic's out there, <laughs> Greek Orthodox. You guys call this apatheia. A-P-A-T-H-E-I-A. I've seen it spelled variously. Apatheia. Closely tied to the, the Stoic of like Seneca, Marcus Aurelius. Tied to the Stoic idea of you know, emotionlessness. That's kind of, that, that's like a cousin of detachment, but the Roman Catholic Church, and again, many spiritual writers, not just Catholics, kind of get away from that. They say, look, we can't be without emotion. We can't be without passion. So the apatheia, passionlessness, that doesn't cut it. That, that doesn't quite get there. It, it could be a good thing. And it sure as heck beats, you know, running around, throwing your temper, <laughs> throwing temper tantrums and falling madly in love with the next girl you see every two seconds and, other things like that. Yeah, I, I get that. But detachment is not passionlessness. It's not emotionlessness. It's not apatheia. Detachment is lack of attachment to anything. And you gotta, you gotta understand that. Detachment means you're not attached to anything. And what I precisely mean is you're not unduly attached. Okay, and like I said, this, and you start getting to the sinews of this, so it's get pretty complicated. So what exactly does that mean? What do you mean, not unduly attached? And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know exactly. But I think this is the best definition I come up to come up with. Undue attachment means anything that quickens your pulse. <laughs> okay, so we're talking a pretty low threshold here. If something quickens your pulse, starts grabbing your attention, Start thinking about it, and you can feel your heart rate go up, or your pulse increases, or you're breathing just a smidgen faster. 
you become attached to it. It's a very, very low threshold. To attain a level of detachment, pretty much nothing has to affect you like that. Okay, now, you know, and just, just, just think about that for a while. Go ahead and pause it if you want to. Pause the podcast here. It, that's, that's something that, that alone is worth cogitating on. Cause when you start thinking about everything that gets your pulse moving during the day, you'll start seeing frick, Shusky. <laughs> I live a life of attachment to which I say, so do I, and we're screwed. <laughs> don't, don't do that. I'm, I'm in my fifties now and I'm still working on it better than I was in my teens. Yeah, a heck of a lot better. Um, but still way, 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 way too freaking attached. Probably more so than most guys in the fifties. It's just kind of the way I'm built. That's a whole different issue. <laughs> now you might be asking yourself, well, surely, I mean, how if I'm attached to my kids? I'm allowed to love my kids. When my kids do something well, my, my, my pulse quickens. When I, when I'm involved in this, you know, maybe I'm involved in this charity project. And my pulse quickens. And I'd say those are great examples. Those are excellent, excellent examples. So let's look at the charity project. So you're gonna, you're gonna start a soup kitchen. And you're into the planning, you do all this work, um, you spend long hours and you're getting volunteers lined up. And then something goes wrong with it. And you have a, you know, the city comes in and say, well, you're not zoned for this. And you throw a freaking fit. Okay. You're not, you're not detached. You took what should have been a supreme act of charity of love, exactly what the gospels tell you to do. You've taken it and you become attached to it unduly in a sinful type way. You can do the same thing with your parents, with your spouse, with your children. You can't tell me looking at a, at a father at a little league game <laughs> that he doesn't have undue attachment to that kid and his success in the field. I myself suffered from that. You can't, you can't deny that. It takes a level of detachment to be able to be a good parent at a little league game. It takes a huge amount of detachment, by the way. One thing I, I've always respected are those little league coaches who are really into the game, but they never come close to losing their, their temper, never lose sight of what the big picture is. That's because they're, they're exercising a level of detachment. They can be passionate about winning the game, but when something goes wrong, they don't lose it. They're always under control and not because they're keeping themselves under control. And that's, you know, you have to think about this. You have to meditate on it. You gotta, you gotta look inside. But the coach is like, oh, I'm not gonna get mad. I'm not gonna get mad. I'm gonna hold him then. That's not detachment. That's that's self control. That ain't detachment. It's 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 a good thing, or at least it's better than losing your temper in front of everyone. But if you feel you're just this pressure cooking inside of you, you're not detached. You're too tied to that little league game. True detachment is, hey, I'm volunteering, helping these little kids learn baseball, making sure they have a good time, trying to develop their talents, their God given talents. But when things don't go well, that's okay too. And yes, we want to win because these little kids want to win. That's part of what's, what goes into a little league game. But if it, we don't win, we, we step back, we pick up the pieces, we move on. That's, that's detachment. And I, and I like the little league example because you can apply it also to softball. So now you're an adult, you know, your knees are, your knees are shot. All you can do is play slow pitch softball. You can't be out there playing hardball anymore or in a bowling league, or whatever. I think that concept, the concept of play, you know, when you really get into a game, I think that kind of tells you how you need to get through life. Because think about it. If nothing quickens your pulse, you're going to have a hell of a time getting through college. You know, you kind of have to get up for studying. 
I mean, I made, I maintained a, a killer grade point average when I was in law school, but I had to get up. And there's a there's a high level of attachment. <laughs> there was no detachment between me and my grades in law school. Uh, for for one year, I, I maintained a perfect four point for the, both semesters, and that didn't come easy. And it sure as hell didn't come with a level of detachment. It came guaranteed with a large level of undue attachment to my grades, my reputation, my pride, my job prospects, everything. So you'd be saying, well, Klaikashevsky, but that got you good grades, got you a good job out of law school. I mean, that's a bad thing? The answer is yeah. You know, the ends don't justify the means. And you say, well, then how, how are you supposed to get through things? How do you get through the workday? You know, because I go to the office some days, and I'm like, I'm going to tackle this project, this project, this project. And I walk in, and I got this, this, and this distraction from the office. These other clients who want their stuff done right away, jumping in front of those projects, I start getting angry. My, feel my pulse quickening. Undo attachment. In that case, attachment to the projects I want to get done. So the question is, well then Frick Shesky, how do you get through the day? Do you have to have goals, plans, ideas, projects? How do you get through it if your pulse never quickens? And the answer is, play. Just like the Little League game, the softball game, bowling, golf. Everything you do can be an exercise and play. And you keep that attitude throughout the entire day. I'm going to tell you right now, it works wonders. And I, I, I practice as much as I can, and I lose sight of it quite often at the office, to be honest with you. It just, it's not, it's not natural to me. My, my natural inclination is I jump in, I have an object in mind, and I go for it. And I, I think I have a small, small dose of OCD. I took a test on the internet once, and I came in like, on a scale of 1 to 10, you're like, you're like a 2 when it comes to OCD, or 1.5. Well, that's me. I mean, I, I kind of see an object or whatever, and I'm just zoned in on it. I want to get it done. I'm also blessed with the, with the ability to get into the flow. I've discussed that in previous podcasts. I'm able to get into the flow of concentration very easily. So to get interrupted kind of sucks. But, you know, we'll come back to that later. But if, if you're in the, if you're in plays, like, that, that's a perfect attitude to have. It's like, okay, you have this object in mind. And you want to get it done. Just like if you're playing softball, you want to win the game. That's cool. You're at the plate. You want to get a hit. That's cool. But when it doesn't happen, you're not unduly bummed out about it. You're you're in you're in the spirit of play. Like in the grand scheme of things, you realize it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. So you're even though you're you are working at play, so to speak, you're still able to let it go because you realize in the grand scheme of things, hey, I don't have cancer. My wife's in good health. My kids are fine. Doesn't really matter. That's kind of how you approach everything in life. Just like some people go at go at. Uh, a game with an almost attitude of work. Flip that around. Go into work with an attitude of play. So everything is kind of just like effort. <laughs> it's just, I mean, yeah, I went in. I engaged just like I do if I'm on, I'm on a field or you know, a tennis court. I engaged. I lost. Didn't go well. Effort. You step away and you move on. You're detached. And what I really like about that analogy is. Go back to one of my favorite books of all time, that Robin Daniels, The Virgin Eye. He talks in terms of everything needs to be an act of play. Even contemplation is with the spirit of play. And at one point he said, and he kind of just said this kind of a throwaway comment, but to me I think it's huge. He said, when you're in play, that's the experience of the transition between subject and object. 
And again, I, I flushed that out. He didn't, as best I know. I, I went through and read it, and he didn't seem to flush out exactly what I meant by that. But when you think about it, play is that, like I call the transition spot between subject and object. Because when you're playing, you're not necessarily thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the pitch coming in that you're trying to hit, uh, the race you're trying to run, or in my case, like gardening, you know, I'm, I'm planning these turnips, you know, whatever the frick it is. So you kind of focus on a, on an object, so you're not necessarily focused on yourself, the subject, but yet you're not that obsessed. You're detached from the object because you realize, hey, it's just a game. It's just a play. If, it doesn't, if the plant doesn't grow, I, I don't get a hit. It's not a big deal. I'm not that attached to the final goal here. So you're not really latched on the object, but yet you're latched on the object enough to suck you out of yourself, the subject. So I think that is a nice, again, I like the phrase, you know, transition, or that what I call the transition spot between the subject and the object. And when you're in the spirit of play, you're in that transition spot. And those of you who have been listening to this podcast for a while also realize that transition spot, that is the Zen spot. You know, we talked about that. You know, the Zen is the exercise of just looking, just experiencing just being Zen because it doesn't believe they're a subject object. Remember, they had ontological monism. That's their metaphysics. Ontological monism. There's only one thing. Brahman. That's that's all there is. Just one thing. There is no subject object. So when when you're in the Zen mode, you get rid of the subject object and you just be. Taoism has a similar type concept, although they didn't get into the metaphysics of ontological monism. So now we're looking at. Christian spirituality, and they're coming to a very, very freaking similar conclusion when it comes to absolute utmost detachment. Or as I talk about in Robin Daniels, you're in the mode of play at all times because you're not unduly attached to anything. When you're in that detachment mode, you are in the Zen mode. So I'd urge any of you who are interested in Christianity and Zen, that connection, Take the detachment key, put that into the lock. I think you'll, I think you'll get a lot of insight there. And always, always, always feel free to email me, uh, ericchesky at gmail.com if you have any questions or ideas, if you want some recommended readings. Uh, this part of the podcast didn't come lightly. I, I, I consulted, goodness gracious, uh, a book by Evelyn Underhill called Mysticism. Writings of Meister Eckhart, some Pseudo Dionysus, St. John of the Cross, some Balthazar, and then of course the, uh, some Zen writers. This is the stunning stuff. So again, pursue detachment, understand detachment. I think, I think you'll, I think you'll open a lot of doors for you. And I, and I tell you, by the way, I thoroughly believe that if you can open that door, you take the key of detachment and you open that door, that experiential door, and on the other side you'll find peace. That detachment segment went on for 21 minutes uncut. And I don't think I'm going to cut a lot of it out either. I kind of liked it. Um, I'll go back and listen to it and do some editing. So I, I had two or three other segments I wanted to do, including lightning segments, but that's not going to happen. This, this episode is going to go on too long as it is. And I, I feel bad about that. I mean, I, I get more compliments about the lightning segments than I do any other 
part of this podcast. I think those are greatly enjoyed. It's because they're short, Shesky, and you suck at this. Well, well, thanks. <laughs> and actually, I guess I shouldn't be too hard on myself. I've actually got a handful. I won't say tons, but definitely definitely enough encouraging comments saying, hey, where you been? I was enjoying the podcast. And not even people I necessarily even know. So uh, that's that's been good. Thanks. Thanks for being out there, so to speak. The last thing I talk about this week is going to be a movie called She's Out of His League. This is a rom-com. And I watched it by myself, which, of course, makes me a homosexual. <laughs> it was uh, the last week of June. I was home by myself. Marie and the kids had all gone up to a place called Houghton Lake to spend the week with Marie's family. I had been to the retreat, my uh, my spiritual retreat with the Trappist the, the week before, so I couldn't take that much time off of work. But every day I have to do these uh, these uh, back exercises. It take about 15, 20 minutes. So I, I watch something on TV while I do these back exercises. There's not a lot, a lot else I can do. So I, I, I frick if I know why. But I watched this like, 2011 rom-com called She's Out of His League. It's about this dweeby guy who wins just a shockingly good-looking woman, Elisa Keys or something like that. I forget her name, but she is she is stunningly hot. I didn't notice, of course, because I'm so you know detached. <laughs> Speaking of which, she reminds me of these uh, two Pentecostal preachers, an old preacher and a, a young preacher walking on the road, like in L.A. or something, and. And these women are dressed pretty scantily. And there's one woman, she's like in a bikini and she is just like drop dead gorgeous. And the, and she, you know, and the, the young preacher, she's getting kind of flustered. It's like this woman's coming very close to them and she's so good looking. And they, they pass by and he's kind of trying to act like he didn't notice. And the old preacher said, Oh, the Lord did a nice job on that one. <laughs> so so I, I guess that could be a level of detachment as well. But anyway, so this whole movie is about this. This uh, nerdy, not very good-looking guy winning this scorchingly good-looking woman. This guy had no self-confidence. He was hampered by his old life, by his family. Uh, this hadn't treated him very well. And towards the end, when he kind of decided, you know, he was he wasn't good enough for this girl, and he broke up with her because he just had such low self-esteem. Towards the end, there's a scene where he's, he gives a middle finger, literally, to everyone in his family, except his mom. He kind of he kind of exempted everybody. He said, F you, dad. F you, brother. F you, this person. F you, this person. And he goes, basically, I'm done with you. And then he goes and reunites with this hot chick. And then they become boyfriend-girlfriend. It's, it's pretty clear they're going to get married and all that. And, and they show him start fulfilling some of his dreams. You know, that's not very much different than... Matthew Kelly, you know, the Catholic writer, Matthew Kelly's constant injunction become the best version of yourself. Yeah, and, and I know expert on Matthew Kelly, what exactly he means by that, and I've always found the saying kind of um, frustratingly elusive. But I think it's, hey, if you catch sight of the beatific vision and you absorb yourself in God, you become detached. That frees up energy to become the best version of yourself in God's eyes. And that's kind of what this movie was, in my opinion. You know, he, he caught sight of the beatific vision, which is this gorgeous girl. Caught sight of that, and she allowed him to become the best version of himself. The scene at the end, where he's telling "f you this, f you, f you, f you" to all these people. That's that's not fascinating. I mean, what you have there is that you have a you have a a Zen master, godfather of the Renzai school in Japan, named Lin Chi. He tells he tells uh, students. 
that they need to slay their parents. That's the phrase, slay your parents. Now, Lin Chi, he was known, he, he is the one who introduced the yelling, you know, and the, yeah! And slaps. Not slaps. Slaps kind of predated him, but the yelling. That was like Lin Chi's thing, and he really popularized that in the Renzai school that you hear in, like, in Japan, these monasteries where they yell at each other and just yell at each other's faces to try to get them to have sudden, lighten, sudden enlightenment. That's Lin Chi. <laughs> and so he was kind of like an in-your-face Zen master, and he also had these outrageous sayings, one of which was, you must slay your parents. Well, he meant by that nothing different than if you if you see the Buddha, kill him. That's an old Zen Buddha saying. You know, the old, if you find yourself in a subject-object universe, you need to kill that object because you're, you're in a falsity. You're in what's called Maya. You need to kill it. So, slay your parents. If you see the Buddha, kill him. Jesus Christ, hate your father and mother. Follow me. She's out of his leg. F you, dad. These things are all related. You need you need to cut off those attachments. You need to cut off undue attachment. Again, in, in the Zen world, it's kind of focused on getting past the subject-object. In the Christian version, it's trying to f- cultivate the spirit of detachment. Alright, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.